You are listening to Changing Hearts, Changing Lives, a seminar given by Changing Lives Ministries. David Pallison is a counselor and faculty member with a Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, as well as the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling, a publication of CCEF. Session 6. I'd like us to switch gears now and, and look at a passage, uh, James chap- end of James chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, and really think this passage through as a way to, to uh, get a framework. Now, part of what I want you to do and think about throughout what we say about James 3 is I want you to, have two th- to kind of have two things rattling around in the back of your mind in everything we say over the next couple of sessions. One, I want you to study this passage. Make it your own. I'm not going to unpack all the, all, every detail of it. We're going to hit some highlights. We're going to go through it. But I want you to study it. There is nothing like patient, thorough, attentive study of the Word of God to make it live. You've, we've got to study. It, uh, you know, when, in, when Proverbs 2 talks about where wisdom comes from, it always hits these two sources. Wisdom is just a gift of God. Ask, you'll receive. And James says that too in James 1.5. You know, if you lack wisdom, which by the way I think is a polite way to say, if you're a fool, you know, if you're acting in a really dopey way, if you're, if you're a thorn bush, ask God who will give it to you without despising your need because he came to be gracious. It, uh, so you ask him. But then Proverbs 2 uh, immediately attaches right to that. Look for it. Dig for it. Search for it as for silver and gold. So I want you to have in the back of your mind Bible study. Take these passages. Work them through. Uh, to convince yourself from the Scripture that, that uh, we're not just pulling a model and images out of a hat and imposing them on the, on the passage. It, uh, if our pictures are true, if our map is true, it's because we got it from the place that revealed it. And the map is just an attempt to kind of pull together various scriptural truths. Second thing I want you to do is at every point as we're talking here, I want you to be thinking, and whether it's now or as you go forward into your days and weeks ahead, how can I personalize this? How can I personalize this? For example, when we start with heat, you'll notice that what we've got there is, a, is, we're, not, is, is, a, is we're setting a little bit of context for James 3 and 4, because and James 3 and 4 is only about the bottom half of our picture. It's not about heat. But the book of James is about heat. In fact, the beginning and the end, the bookends of James are about heat. They're about suffering and difficulty. And uh, it's very interesting the way that heat is talked about. James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. Now, one, that's pretty radical because we're supposed to count it joy. That sounds a bit like 2 Corinthians, doesn't it? Somehow there's something about learning to hear what's really playing in the theater of the universe that gives a joy that can coexist with sorrow. The two are not contradictory. They can coexist. It's not, Christianity is not about putting a smile on, right? It's not about faking it. It's not a drug-induced stupor. It is about, it is the most honest way in the world to look right in the eye the, the hardships of life, the brutalities and the darkness, and have a reason for joy that is simultaneous. And James is also saying that. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. The beauty of that word, various, that phrase, various trials, 
is it invites you, you might say, to put a blank line and put a question mark by it. And if you're Hispanic, put an upside down question mark at the beginning of it to just say, this is a question, you know. This various trials is inviting me to fill in the blank and put in there, what is my trial? What are my trials? What are the hard things I face? Let me put, let me insert my realities in here. It's one of the beauties of Scripture that is both specific and then it bounces out and it gets general enough that every subsequent reader and listener to Scripture is invited to put his or her story and its details into the page. So what are your various trials that are there? Out of that then, and we're going to work largely on the, on, you might say, the, the right side of the page, the heat and the, and the thorn bush for, the, for the, this, this session. Out of that, the passage here speaks, and it again uses general terms. It talks about chaos and every evil practice. In other words, life's a mess. It's just disorderly. It doesn't make sense. There's problems, difficulties, mess. Chaos and every evil practice. Notice there again, chaos, every evil practice. It invites you to put that that, that Spanish upside-down question mark and a big blank line and another question mark and to say, okay, when I face my trials, where do I tend to lose it? Personalize it. That, those two things, the Bible study, the personalizing, I want you to take and run with out of what we talk about, okay? Let's, uh, let's look at the passage and work it through some together. from verse 13 of chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? I would say what's being talked about there is the heart of the fruit tree. It's it's wisdom, understanding, as that fundamentally God-related way of life. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That way of, I start, I learn to see life the way it is. So who among you is wise and understanding? And then look at what it does. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom. So it goes from heart to behavior, a lifestyle that shows forth. General, right? Again, it's general. That's another place you can put that blank line and a couple of bracketing question marks. Well, what would be the opposite of my typical sins? Uh, We're invited to do that. The gentleness of wisdom is a really interesting phrase. The word gentleness is hard to translate into English, but maybe the best way to think about it is to imagine in yourself, to yourself a, a war horse, a racehorse, high energy, 1,200 pounds of quivering horse flesh, power, utterly under the control of the voice, knee, rein, heel of the rider. A horse, we use the word, a horse is gentled, which means it's responsive to the voice of another. That gentleness of wisdom is almost a synonym for having ears to hear another's voice, rein, heel, and knee as he rides you. Um, the gentle, it's, so that gentleness of wisdom is, that, is what we're calling the heart of the fruit tree, that you fundamentally hear what God says to you. But, so now you, we're bouncing over to the other side, of the other side of the ledger, aren't we? Bouncing from fruit tree over to Thornbush, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. And notice what it does here is it, it, it immediately goes to the heart of the thornbush. 
Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. I don't know about you. I, I don't tend to think of myself as particularly full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So the words take a little bit of, you know, that's Donald Trump. That's Saddam Hussein. That's, you know, some maniac. That, uh, but think about it this way. Bitter jealousy, if you were to literally translate it, what it's saying is bad zeal. If you have bad zeal, if you want the wrong things, or what you, the things you want in your life are, are messed up in some way, all of a sudden that's a shoe that fits every one of us, isn't it? That's a synonym for these lusts of the flesh that we've been talking about. If you have bad zeal, if you are zealous for your own kingdom, or zealous to be liked by people, or zealous to control all contingencies, or zealous to make sure bad things don't happen to you, or zealous to control the lives of unruly people, bad zeal, right? If you have bad zeal, and selfish ambition just captures the way in which when we think about the core nature of sin, it both wants and it self-exalts, right? There's a, ultimately an ambition to be God. I am God, and I want what I want. Bad zeal, selfish ambition. If you have that, don't be arrogant. Don't lie against the truth. Don't pretend you don't, in other words. Own up to what's really got you. This wisdom, this foolish wisdom, is not that which comes down from above. It's not a gift of God. We're going to get a little bit more of that later. But it is earthly, natural, demonic. It only comes from the pit. Because the devil wants to be God, and I want what I want. It's the devil. And we are in his image when we are doing the kinds of things that the thorn bush speaks about. But, you know, again, you see how the passage is going. It's bouncing back and forth here. It's a but. The, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 16. For where there is, it is, it's a key one, for where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, where there's that ruling the heart, there's disorder and every evil practice. Another one of these blank lines that invites you to put in your typical stuff. And I would, I would encourage you, you might say, to, to, to take a little uh, sort of, self-counseling, self-discipling laboratory for change in your life. And you might pick some typical thing you struggle with. One of these chaos and every evil practice. You might pick something in the area of anger, grumbling, uh, judging others, gossip, getting into conflicts, being defensive, getting self-righteous. That whole family of reactions. Those are things actually that James is going to go on to talk about because he's going to talk about the conflict family. Now, or you might pick another one in the area of anxiety and worry and fear and timidity and brooding and getting hung up on things and obsessing and getting preoccupied. Or you might pick, I, I picked these three because they're just so generic human nature. Every one of us. The shoe fits us all. It's like, it's like bedroom slippers with no heel. You know, it's just, you can slide every, every, any foot in it. Something in the anger family, something in the anxiety family, maybe something in the escapes addictions, you deserve a break today, you know, TV, ice cream, something worse, um, shopping. Uh, I'm not, shopping's not worse. I, I, was, I was imagining drugs and drinking and you know, all that, but, you know, watching too much, too many sports games, uh, jogging too often, doing reading you shouldn't do when you're supposed to do something else. Now, you might pick something there. Chaos, every evil practice, ways we respond to the heat of life. But, verse 17, the wisdom from above. And again, it's alluding to the fact that there is this true wisdom that God alone gives. Its source is, is in him. That wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle, 
reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Every one of those words bears unpacking, um, and I'm not going to give all the details. But what's largely being spoken of there is, again, we're back over to the, the fruitfulness of the fruit tree, to the, the, sort, the sorts of things in life that make you a person who is truly peaceable. I'll just unpack one of them. When it says unwavering, unwavering, what it really has in mind is a balance scale. And what it's saying is that that balance scale isn't tipped. It's a fair balance. Now, if you've ever been in a conflict, and I know you have, and if you've ever seen other people in a conflict, I know you've seen that too, what you immediately realize when you think about it is it's so unbalanced. In a conflict, what I am doing is I'm looking for every single thing wrong with you. And I'm creating a justification for every single thing possibly wrong with me. I'm really tipping the balances, so you're a loser, and I'm great, aren't I? And even if you get me to own up to something I might have done wrong, I've got a but, but you, but you did this first, but, but the balances tip like that. In fact, I've even found myself at times my wife will start to make too much sense. You ever been like that in an argument? The other person's like, they say eight things that, and they're not mean, and they're, they're right, and you're starting to get a little bit, you know, but you're listening really attentively because she's bound to slip up. And the person will make some little factual error, you know. I mean, they're, they're, they've just taken to the cleaners in the most loving way possible, and they say, you remember how last Friday this happened? It wasn't Friday, it was Saturday that we did that. But, uh, you know, the balances are tipped. This unwavering captures the way that the balances get evened out. I'll never forget this time a, a lady. This was one of the most hostile couples I ever uh, ministered to. They'd been divorced and remarried already once. He was a complete crawl in the closet and not talk for three weeks type. And she was launched the nuclear missiles and the scuds and... <laughs> And she was charming as could be. I'd hate to live with her, but she, uh, the, 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 she was so refreshing. The way she said, she says, I know, I get loud. And when I get loud, my husband just, he won't even say, you know, is there any orange juice in the house? He won't talk for weeks on end. But that lady, over the period of a really very short time, a couple of weeks, she became a woman who was unwavering. I was out of a job, really. She the way I would put it, she became able to talk about her own failings without defensiveness and her husband's failings without attack. She became objective. She became able to just describe what's wrong in the context of this Redeemer who is committed to give wisdom. Fruit tree, right? The passage goes on. James is relentless. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? In other words, why do you fight? Why do you get angry? The million-dollar question. Paul quoted this a, a couple of sessions ago. Isn't the source your pleasures? And that's just not pleasures like you want to be a hedonist. It's what pleases me. It's a synonym for your desires. Just like bad zeal. It's a synonym for your desires. Those pleasures wage war in your members. You lust. You want something. You don't have it, so you commit murder. You're envious, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and then he immediately doubles right back. And you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your pleasure. When someone says, I've prayed about it, 
or when you hear somebody pray, it, it's not an unambiguous good thing, is it? Oftentimes what people pray is their lusts, because what prayer is is asking. And what you'll find is that people often don't pray for the kinds of things that the Psalms or the Lord's Prayer pray. They pray for what they want. You know, Lord, do this, do that, make my life smooth and heal so-and-so and change Johnny and give me money and help me to do a good job. And, and not that any of those things per se might be bad, but they, where they rule the person, the prayer life has no God-centeredness to it. And God, just as often, if he loves us, actually, he doesn't answer the prayer. You know, because we're asking with wrong motives. We're asking, or it's selfish prayers. You adulteresses. Another way of talking about the heart. Adultery, Old Testament, idolatry, false gods. That's what he's getting at here. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see what's going on in this passage? He's just going back and forth between what we've called thorn bush and fruit tree. Thorn bush and fruit tree. And then continually salting into it. Some little insights into who is God. Who's God? Well, he's a giver. He's a giver. He's a giver of wisdom. Uh, now he moves, and he, and he gets much more blunt about who God is. And in verse uh, uh, 5, he says, Do you think Scripture speaks to no purpose? He, God, jealously desires the Spirit. I think that should be a small s. He jealously desires the Spirit he made to dwell in us. In other words, God has a claim on you. He's a claim on every human being. We're his image bearers. And he, this, the jealous God wants what he has made to be for him and not to be off committing adultery. It's a picture of God's holiness and his claim that he has on lives. And then verse 6. Verse 6 is one of the neatest verses in the Bible because he has been relentlessly laying us bare, right? Thorn bush, fruit tree, thorn bush, fruit tree. Which is it? What's coming out in your life? when you're in those various trials. And then it says, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. And then he moves on and he nails us for our pride again. It, uh, it, this is one of these places I, 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 I sometimes thought, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tease James. Because right? here's where Paul would just go off. And he'd come back to earth six chapters later. And Paul would tell you things like, you know, he gives more grace. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. He set his love on you. He decided to love you. He awakened you. He caused you to be born anew. He sent his son to shed his blood for you. You have been justified by faith in the work of another. And he adopted you as his precious child. And he gave his own self, his Holy Spirit, to live inside you. And he will come back for you. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake Paul would have done something like that. James is just much more efficient. Cut to the chase. He gives more grace. And I, I think we could even say there, put another one of those lines with a question mark. Because grace has a thousand facets. And people need different aspects of grace, don't they? In some cases, they need to know he raises the dead. In other cases, they need to know he really is a friend of sinners. In other cases, you need to know he will come back for you. Don't fear. In other cases, you need to know he won't ever leave you or forsake you. In other cases, you need to know, you know what? It's not by your striving that makes you right with God. You are justified by faith in what another accomplished. There's all these facets of God's grace, and we're perfectly free there to stick another blank line and to re in wrestling to personalize it. What do you need to know about God? Or what does the person you're ministering to 
need to know about God that is the, ex- the detailed expression of what that grace would be. God's opposed to the proud. You know, that's that self-exalting. But he gives grace to the humble. We've been talking about that really over, through our whole time together, that sense of need. Submit to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. See, there he's talking about behavior, lifestyle, how you live, the, the thorns. Cleanse your hands. Repent of those sins and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse those sins of the heart also. Bring both of those things to God. Be miserable, mourn and weep. Take seriously your need. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brothers. One last pass here. Now, James is he's really wanting to make sure you don't miss it. Don't speak against each other. Right? He's back to the thorns. Right? That war-making, hostility, grumbling, backbiting, criticism, gossip, negative thoughts. Don't do that. Why? And he cuts right to the heart. Because when you do that, you speak against the law, you judge the law, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. Who are you that you would judge your neighbor? He doesn't answer it, but the question is, is, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Well, who are you when you hold bitterness? You are God, aren't you? You're acting like as if you were God. You're acting like the devil, who is the accuser of the brethren. Who are you when you backbite and get defensive and criticize and get hot and... You're acting as if you were God. You're acting like the devil. The passage is relentless in its exposure of what it is that goes wrong because it is continually setting up then, there is a God who gives more grace, more grace. Now, there are many different kinds of things that we could say here. Um, and we're going to unpack some of them over the next uh, three sessions together. Uh, or next, no, next two sessions together. I want to pick out one particular one here. Uh, I'm glad that we've gotten permission to have water alone here, because I want to do a little experiment with you, okay? It's talking about the relationship between the heat and the heart, right? Between what comes at you and why you react the way you do. And I want, here's an experiment, okay? Now, we can hit, hit it. We can lean on it. We can caress it. Right? We can allure it. Come over here. Come over here. All kinds of things we can do. All kinds of situations people face. Sometimes we get hit or get sinned against. Sometimes we just get leaned on. The pressures and pains of life, frustrations. Sometimes life's going great. I'm being stroked. I'm beautiful. I'm rich. I'm healthy. I'm, everybody loves me. I'm successful. Sometimes we're beguiled by all the voices. There's lots of different things people face in their circumstances. But the million-dollar question is, 
Why is there water on the floor? Right? The easy answer, the answer our culture gives, the answer that rises up naturally in blinded hearts, is there's water on the floor because you hit, the, you hit the, the water jug. The deep answer is, the Bible's answer, God's answer, he who is the searcher of hearts, is there's water on the floor because there's water in there. If there had been gasoline in there, there would be gasoline on the floor. If there had been Coke, orange, the reason there's water on the floor is because of what was in the heart. The situation does not create the heart. The situation is the significant stage on which the heart plays forth. Brothers and sisters, you get that straight, and you will be a radical, countercultural person in the world we live in. Our culture is obsessed with finding causalities outside of ourselves, right? In one decade, it's the way we were treated and sinned against. In the next decade, our current decade, it's our genetics and our hormones. We are not denying for a second that the heat of being violated is not significant. It is. We're not denying for a second that our bodies are not significant. They are. But they are not the final cause of how we live. There is something deeper. And I want to leave you with this thought in that. Uh, two thoughts, actually. First thought is this. There were three men killed on three crosses, right? They all had the exact same situation. They were stripped bare, they were humiliated, they were tortured, they were put up on public display, and they were slowly and painfully killed. One of them was pure thornbush. He cursed the whole way through and blasphemed. One of them was pure fruit tree. He entrusted his soul to a faithful creator and continued to do good all the way through. He loved people all the way through being tortured to death. And the other one started out rotten. He hurled invective at the good guy too. And he changed mid-flight. He moved from thorn bush to fruit tree. And so, it's, so, so by the end of it, he says, Lord Jesus, you know, receive me into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise today. And that man stood up for Jesus. He only had a few hours of life but there was one act of faith and one act of love and obedience, heart, good fruit, that that man put there. Same heat, different life. Because the life of the heart is deeper than the heat there. And a final comment. I want you to think about this. What is the final, you might say, the final exam question of life for you, for the person sitting next to you, and for every human being on the planet? What's the final question you'll be asked? It is not, tell me what happened to you, right? I mean, God knows what happens to us. He knows the hard stuff and the good. He knows the brutalities, the pain, and the blessings. But the final exam question is, how did you live? Who did you live for? What was playing in the theater of your heart? What, what was, your, were the, was the command center of your life hijacked? by false gods? Or was the command center of your life progressively recaptured by the U.S. Marshals, you might say, by the Lord at uh, that question? Our Father, this relationship of heat and heart is so crucial for us to understand. Illumine us, each and all. Help us to be sweetly and powerfully and clearly countercultural. Help us to offer that distinctive 
alternative that your way of thinking offers, a way of thinking that leads to a Messiah. Because, Lord, if people locate the problem, the big problem, the capital B-P, big problem in the heat, there is never a Christ at the end of that line of thinking. And if we see that the biggest problem in the world is I am that problem, it leads right to Jesus. Make us recipients of this and ministers of this to others. In his name, amen. For information about this resource and others like it, call Resources for Changing Lives at 1-800-318-2186 or visit us on the web at www.ccef.org. A CDR Communications Production.